0: Why are you always judging me? I never got around to run through it, okay? <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, that's a must-see. I'll pray for you until you do. That that is a that is a cult favorite at the Tricler House. As a matter of fact, we evangelize people and have them watch Nacho Libre with us. Fantastic. And it, it, and it's this this story of this, this monk who or a little friar who uh, falls in love with wrestling and gets his partner who doesn't believe. And so he's very concerned about his salvation and stuff. So anyway, (laughs) it's very, very funny. Um, Jesus Christ is a huge treasure. Jesus Christ is a huge treasure. And one of the things that's always a struggle for me is thinking through how even after I explain who Christ is to loved ones or friends or, or acquaintances... And they don't view him as a treasure. It's like taking someone down to the most beautiful place in Cancun and looking at the most wonderful sunset, and they just look and say, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't even, that's just ugly. What? When I was in college, I remember um, sitting across, and I was eating lunch with a guy. I don't remember the guy's name, and I don't remember the person that we were talking about. We were talking about a guy who uh, I had been talking with about faith matters. And uh, again, I don't remember who this was or anything. And the, the issue was, is how much of an understanding of the gospel message did this person have? And I was pretty convinced after after having many conversations. This guy just loved to talk about faith stuff, and we had many conversations And not only had we had conversation, I think he was part of a Bible study I was leading and the whole thing. I remember saying to this other guy across the table at lunch, I said, oh, this guy has a complete understanding of the gospel. Complete. He completely understands it. And when I said that, something kind of rang in my head and I don't remember if the guy was even talking but I, I shortly stopped and said, there's no way. There's no way this guy fully understands this. There's no way you could understand the message of Christ that there is a holy God, and that one day you'll have to stand face to face before Him and account for your life and every single thing in your life will have to give account for. And there 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 will be sure there'll be a few goodies, but there'll be a lot more things that were not done in the way that God would have you do them, and there will be a lot to account for. And those the Bible calls those things sin, and. As a result, God is a just God and because he's just, he's a holy God and he cannot allow people who are not completely perfect to enter into heaven. Can't do it. He'd stop being just. Be like a a judge in our day looking at a rapist and saying, you did it, but I'm going to declare you innocent. That'd be unjust. We'd, We'd lynch a judge like that. So God can't do it. And so up there, In heaven, I'm going to have to account for my sin. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the the purpose of the cross is that Christ offers a substitute. He says, I'll take your sin. I'll take your sin. My death on the cross was sufficient. It paid the way I was in. Being fully God and fully man, I paid an infinite price for that. I'll take it away. The only thing is, are you going to let him have it or not? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to let him be your sin bearer? Now, It hit me in that conversation back in college when Lincoln was president, that there's no way you can understand that message and not believe it. You just don't understand it. There's something that isn't connecting with you. It's as if someone is saying, there's a bus coming at you And you don't move. Unless you have like a death wish or something, but I mean, there's a bus coming right at you and you're standing in the middle of the road and you don't move. You can say, I understand that the bus is coming. No, you don't. I don't know if I need to talk about laws of physics or the laws of bus hitting you in the face or what, but something you don't understand. There's something that's not connecting. And that's where we're at in the Gospel of John right now. If you want to open up your Bibles at John chapter 12, we are looking at, this is the end of John chapter 12. We have been looking at um, this particular chapter for our fourth week. We started out where, uh, in the beginning of John chapter 12, Jesus is anointed uh, with perfume by Mary. And Mary is, pours this expensive perfume over him. And Judas says, what are you doing? We could have sold that and got some money. It talks in the passage early on the on John chapter 12 that Judas was a thief. He was skimming off the top. And Judas was not a... Uh, he, he, he understood to some degree, but he didn't truly believe it. He didn't truly act upon it. He didn't truly understand it. And then... That moves us into the second part where Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. And the crowds there are like, yes, our king is finally here. They're going to scream and yell for him. That same crowd that seven days later is going to yell, crucify him, crucify him, get him away. Same crowd is going to do that. But on this particular day, on this Palm Sunday was what we normally uh, celebrate that as. They're yelling, yes, he's here. The king is here. That develops into what we talked about last week. These Greek people, these non Jewish people come up and they ask Jesus, or they ask Andrew and and, and his his brother Philip if they could meet with Jesus. That triggers something. There's a time now, Jesus says, The time has come. He opens up the floodgates at that moment and and divulges everything about himself. He unveils himself. He says, I am the one that has come. But let me tell you something that I didn't tell you on Palm Sunday. What I didn't tell you on Palm Sunday is that I'm going to die. I'm going to die very shortly here. The crowd then says, what? We thought you came here to kill the Romans. You're, you're coming here to die? What are you, nuts? And they start to doubt who Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't enter into debate with them. He says, let me, let me go on here. Uh, in, in, uh, he goes on to say, verse 34, go on to 34. One more. He's, the crowd says to him, We've heard the law that the Son, the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus says, Time for question, question asking is over. It's now decision time. We're at a T in the road. You can't go straight anymore. You don't have enough time. In a few days I'm going to be gone. Time now to decide. And he says to them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Before darkness overtakes you, the man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. And when he's done with that little plea, he pleaseth them. Stop arguing about anything. Stop arguing about whether I'm what's this whole son? How am I going to die? Just and now it's time to believe in me. When he's done with that, he hides himself. It says, Jesus left and hid himself from them. That's where we pick it up. This time now, one of the amazing things in the gospel, and this is this is a hard week to be honest with you. It's been, it's been a hard week for me. On Thursday, I got kind of ill and got this weird thing that I just feel just like somebody put a big syringe in me and sucked all the mojo out of me. Ugh. And that's the way I feel. Uh, and, and and this passage is one of the hardest in the Gospel of John, I think. It, it, it's quite a rebuke. What we've seen now for about. 12 full chapters, today we end chapter 12, is most people who come into contact with Jesus reject him. Isn't that crazy? That's kind of crazy, if you think about it. Here's Jesus, and he's not only giving great theology, why? Because he, you know, wrote the Bible. I mean, he was part of the, he and the Trinity, I mean, they, they did the Bible. So he's got great theology, so he's He's saying this, but he does it more than that. He's doing incredible miracles, healing people, voices from heaven. All kinds of things are happening. And people still reject him. Now, it shouldn't totally surprise you, because if you remember way back, a year and a half ago when we started the Gospel of John, it, it said in John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Think how ironic that is. The creator, the one who made everything, comes there, and the ones who are the created don't acknowledge the creator. It's ironic. It's incredible. Yet, to all who did receive him, he gave the right to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, with that said, let's pick it up where we're going to go with today. We're going to start in verse 37. Even after all Jesus had done, excuse me, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. It's the ultimate dis. After everything he did and said, he's been with them now for, for pushing three years in, in, in public ministry, and he, they will not the crowd will not believe in him. You've got to scratch your head, and today what we're going to look at is why. Why? What makes a person an unbeliever? I almost titled this message, I thought about making it, How to, be, how to Become an Unbeliever, because it's right here. Gospel writer John, when he wrote this, steps back from the narrative here, steps back from the story, and makes a comment. And it's one of the most harsh, um, biting comments that it could possibly make. John chapter 12, verse 38 through 41. The fulfillment of a sobering prophecy. Let me just read this through and then we're going to kind of take it in three different chunks. Because you would, if, you'd, if you're reading the Gospel of John you'd, for the first time, and you say you were the, one of the original readers of it, you'd scratch your head and go, why? Why wouldn't they believe? And this is what the, the author, John, gives as the reason. He says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. So there was a prophecy about this, about people not believing. Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can so that excuse me so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus glory and spoke about him it is an amazingly sober prophecy to say why don't people believe was fulfilling a prophecy, a prophecy against them. Now let's look at that first part, verse 38. Isaiah has a vision of Christ. And you see this in the end of verse 41 too. I should have highlighted it too. It says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The, the, the phrase he has there, he quotes Isaiah the prophet and he says, Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That comes from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is probably, if, if I were going to take anyone who had any knowledge of the Bible and uh, an understanding of the Old Testament the New Testament, when it was written, and they were to say, prove to me that, this, that there really is prophetic words about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, there's no doubt I would start in Isaiah 53. No doubt. Written hundreds of years before Christ. Isaiah 53 Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces he was despised, and we esteemed him not. As he's writing Isaiah 53, and it keeps going on, it's incredible as it keeps going on. But that's enough just to get the point here. Isaiah gets a vision of Christ. Now it says here, and go back one. It says that he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of it. I don't know exactly how much Isaiah understood, but somehow he understood the suffering servant that was to come, who was going to be the sin bearer of the world. Completely understood that. And it's in Isaiah 53. And as Isaiah sees all this and he prophesies clearly about who this suffering Messiah is going to be, he asks the question in the very beginning of it. He says, "Lord, Lord, who Yeah, look here. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" That's the question. It's a rhetorical question. It's not answered because then he goes on about this whole thing that people are just repulsed by Him, repulsed by this, this Savior on the cross. Ooh, ugh. It's so repulsed by Him that they turn away from Him. Who, the answer to, to uh, Isaiah's question, Lord, who believed our message and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If the answer is very few. Very few of His own people are going to believe in Him. So that's why John quotes this passage from the beginning. He says he saw who Jesus was, and the first thing he says after he sees this magnificent picture of the Christ in some way, shape, or form, and he he writes these words about him, is who believed this? And there's not many. But then he gets even harder. Look at verse 39 of John chapter 12. He says, For this reason they could not believe Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and I'm going to look at that in just a minute. It kind of goes in between these two. For this reason, they, and then he uses a striking phrase, could not believe. They're not able to believe. Whoa. Wait a minute. These people that are unbelievers out there, they couldn't believe. Why? And he's going to show us just a minute because their hearts have been hardened. Wait a minute here now. Are you saying that God, if you look at the end of that passage, He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. What? Are you saying that God is the one who is hardening and blinding eyes? Are you saying that people are the ones who hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes? Let me bring you back to the the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh. When when Moses meets with God, God says to him, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The reason for that is that I want to receive glory and I have created him for this very purpose that my glory might be be manifested in you. He says, I'm going to harden your heart. But then also in the passage, many times it says, what? Not that God hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the question then is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God or Pharaoh? Answer yes. <laughs> Clearly, it's yes. For they could not believe, because as Isaiah said elsewhere, to fulfill prophecy, let's look at verse 40 now and 41. He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, here John, the writer, is responding to this amazing thing that the people of Israel do not recognize the Messiah. It's shocking. It's shocking. And if you're really interested in this, read Romans 9 through 11. That's really when Paul says, how can this be? How can the people of Israel have missed the Messiah? It's just shocking. It's so shocking. Paul puts together three of the most complicated, and you've got to read them slow to understand, how did God remain faithful to his promise to Israel, and yet Israel not believe? It's fascinating. Don't have time to go there. Sometime before I retire, I'm going to preach to the Romans, but not now. So, uh, Romans 9 to 11, go there. But here he's just going to quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is an interesting interesting chapter all in itself. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6 is actually the beginning of the prophet Isaiah's ministry. God calls him into ministry in this particular chapter. Now, the interesting thing is that it's not Isaiah 1. I'm not sure how that happened. Somehow it ended up being Isaiah 6. And he has this amazing thing where he sees God. He sees him in all his glory. It's a, it's quite a striking passage. And he, then he, Isaiah looks at himself. Man, I'm toast. I am nothing. Who am I? And then uh, this 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 foreshadowing of what Christ would do on the cross by this seraph and a coal touches him, and he's forgiven of his sin. And then verse eight. And this is what John is quoting as he's he's writing about why people don't believe. And 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 this is what I. Uh, Isaiah wrote, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, this Isaiah 6, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go out for us? And I said, this Isaiah speaking, Here am I, send me. Then it says, He said, which is the Lord, Go and tell this people. So here's the message that Isaiah has as, Here's your message, Isaiah. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And now here's the call to Isaiah. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And what you hear here in this thing of the call of Isaiah, what he's supposed to do is go out there and preach. And you know what he's going to get? He's going to make people harder through his preaching. That's what it says. And what has happened here is the people of Israel have wandered off way back from even the beginning. Just read their history. They're just, they're just all over the place. And I'm sure we are too. But, but they're just amazing at how far they wander from God and, and spin in his face by worshiping trees and rocks. And man, they're out there. And, and God has just said, you know what? This is, uh, as uh, D.A. Carson calls it, a judicial hardening. There's so much going on here. They know I'm just going to give you over. You want to worship other things? Go for it. You're done. I'm just going to, I'm going to let you go. Matter of fact, I'm going to bring my number one guy, Isaiah, here, and as he preaches, you're just going to get harder and harder and harder. You also hear in here some sarcasm. Look at that last verse there, last half of that verse. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. There's this almighty God being sarcastic. is a little scary, actually, but there it is. Now, that's frightening. This is a frightening passage. The frightening result of obedience is that God is opposed to you. He's actually working against you. He's hardening you. You're hardening yourself. Guess what? God will help you. That doesn't scare, that scares me. scares me to think that God would help me. If I choose to just wander away and harden my heart, he's like, I'll, I'll give you a hand. Sure, I'm all, I'm all for it. Now, John, the writer, is talking about this thing about divine sovereignty and how God is involved in people and hardening their heart and softening their heart. At the same time, the book of John has the word believe in it 98 times as a command. So obviously there's human responsibility and we have a real choice whether or not to believe. And how those two things fit together, I don't know, put it in your pipe and smoke. I don't know how those two things fit, but I do know this, that they're both there. That God is ultimately in control and I am ultimately responsible for my decisions. No excuses, ever. And here it says, look at this verse 42, here it is. It says, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. So there's these leaders of this crowd of the Pharisees or of the people in in, in religious spots who believe in Jesus. They've made a choice to do that. But they didn't go all the way. They intellectually assented to it, but, but following Christ is more than an intellectual assent. What else does it involve? It says, but because of the Pharisees, they would not, and here it is, confess their faith unconfessed faith is not real faith. It says they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. If you're not willing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, no matter what the consequences, in the right situation, it says you're not not truly a follower of Jesus for fear they would be put out of the synagogue for, the reason is, they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Man, what another striking indictment here so here are these leaders and they are putting their intellectual assent in jesus saying i really think he is the messiah but i'm not i'm going to be like one of those undercover jesus no can't be you have to confess it to be a full follower of jesus praise from god if you don't view that as more important than praise from men then he says you're just not fully a believer then Jesus cries out to them and he gives them a final plea to believe. He says, when a man, he cries this out. When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. And that goes back to an old uh, Jewish proverb one saying, the one who is sent is equal to the one who sent him. All right, so that's he just saying, I am, you're looking at the father here. Because I'm his sent one, the son. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. Jesus, that, that sounds encouraging. Just wait, it gets worse. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the, at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord. But the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He's saying, listen, if, if you're rejecting me, you've got to understand something. You are totally rejecting the Father. And you've got to understand that. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not here. I'm the, I'm the one who came to be a Savior. But the Father is the one who's going to judge you. And you will be judged. You'll be judged for rejecting me because you rejected him and you rejected his offer of eternal life. It's gone. And you'll be judged on that clearly. So he's pleading with them to believe. Again, hardening and softening and pleading to believe. There it is, both in one passage, and it's, they're both true. They're, of course they're both true. And you know what? You know that that's true. Those of you who are bristling right now thinking, no, how can that be? You know it's true. Why would you ask God to do anything if it weren't true? People often say to me, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, why do you pray? doesn't make any sense. If God's going to do what he wants to do, why would you pray about anything? My answer back for it is, if you don't believe God's in control of everything, why would you pray? God, would you please, if you can, I know you really can't, but if you could, would you do this? God would say back, well, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. That's not the way it works. He can. And how he does is a mystery, but he does. Now. If you're like me, this thing, it still makes me scratch my head. Now, I want to like, take a little bit of a, a look at this and, and ask the question, why don't people believe? Why didn't people believe then? Why don't they believe now? What is up with that? Why wouldn't you believe? What's at stake? Before we go there, though, because what I really want to hit is this issue of unbelief. What is unbelief? Before we hit that, though, I want to hit the difference between unbelief and doubt. And doubt is a funny thing, okay? Doubt in and of itself can be an okay thing. For instance, if you were here this Christmas, we looked at two different, we looked at a whole bunch of different people, but we looked at Mary and Zechariah. Mary, when the angel comes to him, says, how will this be? Since I'm still a virgin. But do you notice the word there? The word was will. How will this be? That's doubt. That's saying how do the pieces fit together, Lord? I know you're going to do it, but I just don't get it. That in in the Bible is considered very strong faith. But you're asking a question about how it can happen. As opposed to Zechariah, who said, how can this be? When he's talking about his son, John the Baptist. How can this be? In other words, I don't think you got it right. Just like they asked, Jesus, just a little bit ago, and they said, How can you say those things that the Son of God's gonna die? How can you say that? That's not doubt. That's unbelief. Unbelief is when you tell God, God, I refuse to believe what you just told me to be true. I refuse it. It's not, it's not, say say you're relatively new to Christ here. You start reading your Bible. And you start realizing, whoa, ho, 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 the way I understood sexuality, ho, 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 the Bible says some different things about it. It talks about sex in the context of a committed relationship between a husband and a wife where, it's, where they're married and it's, it's all safe and good. That's the way God created it. And you're thinking, wow, that's, that's certainly not the way I was thinking. I was thinking differently. And so you start to wrestle through that. And there, there, Doubt is when you say, now, maybe some of the thoughts I had before are not quite right. Maybe, maybe it isn't okay to just date people for sexual reasons and over and over and over. Maybe, but i got to know why. I had one guy sit in my office once. He uh, wasn't a follower of Christ, and he was going to marry his wife, and he, she wasn't a follower of Christ. And, he, and I require that couples, before they're married, are celibate. And he said, I'm totally good with that. Just tell me why. That's doubt. That's good doubt. <laughs> just tell me why, Pastor. That was great. Great conversation. Unbelief is where you say, God, I know what you say, but you're a killjoy. And you created this thing. And actually, I don't think you're very good. Why would you create something like that? Here is sex. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Can't have it. (laughs) Ha, ha. There's something wrong with him. So therefore, I know better, and so I'm going to do something different. That's unbelief. Unbelief says, I know better than you, God. God. Now, where did it start? Let's take a look at the sin of unbelief. It started with the very first sin. It is the sin that is the fruit of every other sin. Every other sin ultimately comes down to not believing in the character and the goodness and the promises of God. Everything. I like to define sin as idolatry. We'll see that in just a minute. Why? I think that's a great definition for sin. But ultimately it comes from a rejection, first of all, of saying, God, you're not who you claim to be. It started in the very first sin that ever happened in the Bible. Adam and Eve were created, and in, and excuse me, Eve is not yet created. Adam is the only one created at this point, and God gives Adam a command. He says in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Genesis, he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Any tree you want. Go ahead. Lots of trees, pineapples, apples, peaches, bananas. Bananas grow in trees. I don't know. Whatever. It grows on trees. You're... Go ahead. All those, but just the one. Stay away from the one. The one is the knowledge of, of good and evil. And you eat that one, you're done. You're going to die. Life will be different. White space. Trust me on this, Adam. I know what I'm talking about here. Well, the Satan, uh, Satan knows that whenever you say something to anyone, like if I say, if you just close your eyes right now and think about anything you want, but don't think about pink elephants flying around, all you'll want to think about is pink elephants. Just, Satan knows that. So what does he do? Now, it says in chapter 3 then, Eve is now created. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, uh, and he comes to Eve, but don't rip on Eve. Adam is there right with her. He didn't say a word. What does he see? He's right there with her. So, all this garbage about giving Eve so much. He, Adam is supposed to do something. He's the one who heard clearly God say this. He had to pass the information to Eve, and, and he doesn't do anything. He's watching ESPN, give me another beer, or whatever the deal is. The beer must have been really good in Eden. Can you imagine what the beer. Uh, <laughs> It says, anyway, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God say that? Did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that even what he said? That's not even a close facsimile of what he said. Flip back one there, Andy. It says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except one. What does Satan say? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? dear? you hear what's happening? He's messing with their mind. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought, I thought it was just one. Oh no, wait, no, it was just one. Wait, what did he say? And that's he's he's Satan is coming and he's attacking what God said. He's attacking God's goodness. You can eat from any tree you want. Did you really say you can't eat from any tree? I can't believe God would do something that bad. Look at all these great trees. You can't eat many of them. The woman replied back, uh, well, no, no, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. I don't know how, maybe it was in the middle, but that's not what God said it was, but somehow she puts it in the middle, in her mind at least, and you must not touch it. She adds that, didn't say anything about touching it, just don't eat it, or you will die. And here it comes. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear what's going on here? Satan is coming up against God, and it's his character against God's. God says, don't eat it, you'll die. The knowledge of good and evil, and you'll die. Satan says, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. And and Eve and perhaps Adam, they don't really talk about much of a dialogue here, but at least they're thinking, you know, this is kind of, both are kind of interesting. I mean, God, he talks to us, and that's kind of weird because no one else really talks to us like that, and certainly snakes don't talk to us too often. This is really weird. How often do snakes talk? And that's got to be pretty important. I mean, and that the tree, it would be kind of fun to eat of that tree. And and this may be just a different interpretation of what God said. You see what starts to go? And you start to impugn whether or not what God said is true. God says you will die. This is not good for you. Trust me in this. And ultimately Satan is saying, don't believe it. It's a sin of unbelief. Look what happens. When the woman saw that the that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Those three things. Good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She trusted the serpent more than God. Took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. There he is. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. They'd never... Can you imagine... Not experiencing a shameful thing in your life. Not anything. And all of a sudden they go, whoa, dude, we're naked. This is not good. It's kind of like those naked dreams you have. I don't know if you guys have that. (laughs) Preachers, we have those all the time. It's like, dude, I have no pants. What's the deal? (laughs) Praise God I got pants. All right, so that's just it. Instantly, boom, shame hits them. They never experienced it before. They had totally innocence. Innocence lost. They have shame on them. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man as I've heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they what? They hid from God. Now you can read more about what happens with the curse and what has happened to us. We live in the curse right now as a result of this. They hide from God. they never experienced shame before, and now they hide from God. Don't eat from the tree. I'm telling you, don't eat from the tree. No good will come. Everything in your life this morning that gives you pause comes because they ate from the tree. Everything. Now, Paul talks about this too. He talks, he expands on this and he kind of does some theology with the whole idea of where did sin come from and what is this whole idea of unbelief. He says in Romans chapter 1, He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's why belief is so important. What is it ultimately? It's trust. It's treasuring Christ above everything else. Even things that maybe seem like they make more sense. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Then he goes on to say, and he talks about this faith. Here's faith, and here's the opposite of faith now. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You hear that? There's this active, it's not, oh, it's not ignore. Oh, I don't see it. No, it's suppression. It's pushing it away. Ugh, get away from me, truth. I'm holding you down. It is unbelief. Unbelief is, a, is something you do. It's not something you just fall into. Oh, I choose not to believe. No, you are not believing. It is an action. An atheist is the most religious person alive. They are an atheist, not theist. It's a religion. Okay. Uh, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. Yes, nature screams the glory of God. There it is. It screams it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor give thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And here it is. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. And birds and animals and reptiles. Hear that? They had this possibility of trusting in God, and instead they they decide to switch it. God, you're not who you say you are. I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to put this other God, whatever it is. And you think, oh, geez, we don't we don't do we don't do any longer, you know, things like uh, uh, reptiles and animals and birds, and you know you know we're way advanced. Oh, we're way advanced we got computers and, and relationships and clear skin and, and uh, how tall you are and what kind of car you drive and yada, 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 yada. It's even more foolish. Give me a totem pole or something. that would be better. This other stuff is just it's fleeting. At least the pagans believed that that was real. I mean, this other stuff we just know is going to gone. It's like Hollywood. I'm, I'm on something. I'm preaching now. But um, it's kind of like Hollywood. Every one of those people knows how fleeting this is. And yet they still chase after it like crazy. see these Academy Awards and they all drive up there and they all want to be the coolest thing and who's going to be the hottest dressed or whatever. And in five years, you know, life takes over and you sag. I mean, you do. Oh, sure, you can pump yourself up with all kinds of plastic and whatever, but ultimately, can you imagine the weight now? I mean, it's just going to happen. (laughs) I I digress. That, That was free. That didn't come in first service. So what happens? This is the scary thing. This is the scary thing in Romans 1. When you do that, you know what God says? Therefore God gave them over. He's like holding you back until you just, you just hell-bent on going that way. He says, you know what, go ahead. People say, the wrath of God, that's a silly thing. You don't see that in the world. Oh, you don't see that in the world? Oh my gosh, you see it everywhere. People chasing after these, boy, an Iron Range phrase just came to my mind. Not smart. <laughs> Sorry, uh, ways of living, and God just says, Go for them. Go for it. See how much that gives you joy. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, there it is again, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. One of my new heroes, uh, actually, I've, I've read him for a long time, but I've just recently become a hero, or he's become a hero for me. He died 75 years before my birth, but uh, by the na- a man by the name of Charles Hayden Spurgeon. He was an English preacher um, about 100 years ago or so, and uh, amazing, amazing use of the English language, and I just want to read you what he says about unbelief. He says, I affirm, and the word declares it, unbelief is a sin. Surely with rational and unprejudiced persons, it cannot require any reasoning to prove it. Is it not a sin for a creature to uh, to doubt the word of its maker? Is it not a crime and an insult to the divinity for me and Adam, a particle of dust, to dare to deny his words? Is it not the very summit of arrogance and extremity of pride for a son of Adam to say, even in his heart, God, I doubt thy grace. God, I doubt thy love. God, I doubt thy power. O sirs, believe me, could ye roll all sins into one mass? Could ye take murder and blasphemy and lust, adultery and fornication, everything that is vile, and unite them all into one vast globe of black corruption? They would not equal even then the sin of unbelief. This is the monarch's sin, the quintessential of guilt, the mixture of the venom of all crimes, the dregs of the wine of Gomorrah. It is the A1 sin, the masterpiece of Satan, the chief work of the devil. That's what unbelief is. Unbelief is a stubborn refusal to go there with God. Now, that's an indictment. Why do they not believe? Because they're unbelievers. Why do we not believe? Because we're unbelievers. It scares me to think of my heart getting hard. I hope it scares you. It scares you in a good way. I, I don't, don't want to scare you needlessly here. But I do not want God to be opposed to you. And I do not want God to be opposed to me First Peter says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Almighty God, on the opposite side of the tug of war with you. I do not want to live my life that way. My, my venture is that no one in this room wants to live their life that way. I don't know where everyone in this room is at on their journey. And in some ways it doesn't matter. You could be a person right now that you are far away from Christ and, and 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 it might be unbelief that's holding you there. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Fight unbelief. That doesn't mean you don't have doubt and questions. Those are good and healthy. But can they go from how will this happen instead of being how can this happen? You can't be right. You can't be good. God, what happened in my life when I was a kid, you can't be good. He's good. These events happened. I don't know exactly how that works, but he is good. You may be following Christ for a long time and you know what might come a situation in your life where there's someone in your life that you are so angry and bitter against your heart is turning to stone. I'm begging you. Fight unbelief. God says if you don't forgive people you won't be forgiven. You got to forgive. You got to let it go. And I'm not saying you have to trust them. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is a grace thing. You let them go and you let God says it's mine to avenge. Let me do it, not yours. I beg you as as your pastor, as your friend, fight unbelief. Let's pray together.